Chapter 54 of Dread, A Tale of the Great Dismal Swamp by Harriet Beecher Stowe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Dread, Chapter 54, The Escape. Clayton had not been an unsympathizing or inattentive witness of these scenes. It is true that he knew not the whole depth of the affair, but Harry's letter and his own observations had led him without explanation to feel that there was a perilous degree of excitement in some of the actors in the scene before him, which, unless some escape valve were opened, might lead to most fatal results. The day after the funeral, he talked with Harry, wisely and kindly, assuming nothing to himself on the ground either of birth or position, showing to him the undesirableness and hopelessness, under present circumstances, of any attempt to right by force the wrongs under which his class were suffering, and opening to him and his associates a prospect of a safer way by flight to the free states. One can scarcely appreciate the moral resolution and force of character which could make a person in Clayton's position in society, himself sustaining in the eye of the law the legal relation of a slaveholder, give advice of this kind. No crime is visited with more unsparing rigor by the regime of Southern society than the aiding or abetting the escape of a slave. He who does it is tried as a negro stealer, and in some states, death. In others, a long and disgraceful imprisonment in the penitentiary is the award. For granting the slightest assistance and succor in cases like these, for harboring the fugitive for even a night, for giving him the meanest shelter and food, persons have been stripped of their whole property and turned out destitute upon the world. Others, for no other crime, have languished years in unhealthy dungeons, and coming out at last with broken health and wasted energies. Nor has the most saintly patience and purity of character in the victim been able to lessen or mitigate the penalty. It was therefore only by the discerning power of a mind sufficiently clear and strong to see its way through the mists of educational association that Clayton could feel himself to be doing right in thus violating the laws and customs of the social state under which he was born. But in addition to his belief in the inalienable right of every man to liberty, he had at this time a firm conviction that nothing but the removal of some of these minds from the oppressions which were goading them could prevent a development of bloody insurrection. It is probable that nothing has awakened more bitterly the animosity of the slaveholding community than the existence in the northern states of an indefinite yet very energetic institution known as the Underground Railroad. And yet, would they but reflect wisely on the things that belong to their peace, they would know that this has removed many a danger from their dwellings. One has only to become well acquainted with some of those fearless and energetic men who have found their way to freedom by its means, to feel certain that such minds and hearts would have proved in time an incendiary magazine under the scorching reign of slavery. But, by means of this, men of that class who cannot be kept in slavery have found a road to liberty which endangered the shedding of no blood but their own, and the record of the strange and perilous means by which these escapes have been accomplished sufficiently shows the resolute nature of the men by whom they were undertaken. 
it was soon agreed that a large party of fugitives should, in concert, effect their escape. Harry, being so white as easily to escape detection out of the immediate vicinity where he was known, assumed the task of making arrangements, for which he was amply supplied with money by Clayton. It is well known that there are, during the greater part of the year, lumberers engaged in the cutting and making of shingles who have extensive camps in the swamp and live there for months at a time. These camps are made by laying foundations of logs on the spongy soil, thus forming platforms on which rude cabins are erected. In the same manner, roads are constructed into distant parts of the swamp by means of which transportation is carried on. There is also a canal cut through the middle of the swamp on which small sailing craft pass backwards and forwards with shingles and produce. In the employ of these lumberers are multitudes of slaves hired from surrounding proprietors. They live here in a situation of comparative freedom, being obliged to make a certain number of staves or shingles within a stipulated time, and being furnished with very comfortable provision. Living thus somewhat in the condition of freemen, they are said to be more intelligent, energetic, and self-respecting than the generality of slaves. The camp of the fugitives had not been without intercourse with the camp of lumberers some five miles distant. In cases of straits, they had received secret supplies from them, and one or two of the more daring and intelligent of the slave lumberers had attended some of Dredd's midnight meetings. It was determined, therefore, to negotiate with one of the slaves who commanded a lighter, or small vessel, in which lumber was conveyed to Norfolk to assist their escape. On some consultation, however, it was found that the numbers wanting to escape were so large as not to be able without exciting suspicion to travel together, and it was therefore decided to make two detachments. Millie had determined to cast in her lot with the fugitives, out of regard to her grandchild, poor little Tom Tit, whose utter and merry thoughtlessness formed a touching contrast to the gravity and earnestness of her affections and desires for him. He was to her the only remaining memorial of a large family which had been torn from her by the ordinary reverses and chances of slavery, and she clung to him, therefore, with the undivided energy of her great heart. As far as her own rights were concerned, she would have made a willing surrender of them, remaining patiently in the condition wherein she was called, and bearing injustice and oppression as a means of spiritual improvement, and seeking to do what good lay in her power. Every individual has an undoubted right, if he chooses thus, to resign the rights and privileges of his earthly birthright. But the question is a very different one when it involves the improvement and the immortal interests of those for whom the ties of blood oblige him to have care. Milly, who viewed everything with the eye of a Christian, was far less impressed by the rigor and severity of Tom Gordon's administration than by the dreadful demoralization of character which he brought upon the plantation. Tom Tidd, being a bright, handsome child, his master had taken a particular fancy to him. He would always have him about his person, and treated him with the same mixture of indulgence and caprice which one would bestow upon a spaniel. He took particular pleasure in teaching him to drink and to swear, apparently for nothing else than the idle amusement it afforded him to witness the exhibition of such accomplishments in so young a child. In vain, Milly, who dared use more freedom with him than any other servant, expostulated. He laughed or swore at her, according to the state in which he happened to be. 
Millie therefore determined at once to join the flying party and to take her darling with her. Perhaps she would not have been able to accomplish this had not what she considered a rather fortunate reverse about this time brought Tom Tit into disgrace with his master. Owing to some piece of careless mischief which he had committed, he had been beaten with a severity as thoughtless as the indulgence he had other times received, and, while bruised and trembling from this infliction, he was fully ready to fly anywhere. Quite unexpectedly to all parties, it was discovered that Tom Gordon's confidential servant and valet, Jim, was one of the most forward to escape. This man, from that peculiar mixture of boldness, adroitness, cunning, and drollery, which often exists among Negroes, had stood for years as prime and undisputed favorite with his master. He had never wanted for money or for anything that money could purchase, and he had had an almost unreproved liberty of saying in an odd fashion what he pleased with the licensed audacity of a court buffoon. One of the slaves expressed astonishment that he, in his favored position, should think of such a thing. Jim gave a knowing inclination of his head to one side, and said, "'Fact is, brethren, this child is just tired of these year partnership concerns. I and master, we has all things in common, sure enough, but then I'd rather have less of em, and have something that's mine. Besides which, I'm never going to have a wife till I can get one that'll belong to myself. That there's a thing I'm particular about.' The conspirators were wont to hold their meetings nightly in the woods, near the swamp, for purposes of concert and arrangement. Jim had been trusted so much to come and go at his own pleasure that he felt little fear of detection, always having some plausible excuse on hand if inquiries were made. It is to be confessed that he had been a very profane and irreverent fellow, often attending prayer meetings and other religious exercises of the Negroes, for no other apparent purpose than to be able to give burlesque imitations of all the proceedings for the amusement of his master and his master's vile associates. Whenever, therefore, he was missed, he would, upon inquiry, assert with a knowing wink that he's been out to the prayer meeting. Seems to me, Jim, says Tom one morning, when he felt particularly ill-natured, seems to me you're doing nothing but going to meeting lately. I don't like it, and I'm not going to have it. Some deviltry or other you're up to, and I'm going to put a stop to it. Now, mind yourself, don't you go any more, or I'll give you... We shall not mention particularly what Tom was in the habit of threatening to give. Here was a dilemma. One attendance more in the woods this very night was necessary, was indeed indispensable. Jim put all his powers of pleasing into requisition. Never had he made such desperate efforts to be entertaining. He sang, he danced, he mimicked sermons, carried on mock meetings, and seemed to whip all things sacred and profane together in one great syllabub of uproarious merriment, and this to an idle man, with a whole day upon his hands, and an urgent necessity for never having time to think, was no small affair. Tom mentally reflected in the evening, as he lay stretched out in the veranda smoking his cigar, what in the world he should do without Jim to keep him in spirits, and Jim, under cover of the day's glory, had ventured to request of his master the liberty of an hour, which he employed in going to his tryst in the woods. This was a bold step, considering how positively he had been forbidden to do it in the morning. But Jim heartily prayed to his own wits, the only God he had ever been taught to worship, to help him out once more. 
He was returning home, hastening in order to be in season for his master's bedtime, hoping to escape unquestioned as to where he had been. The appointments had all been made, and between two and three o'clock that night the whole party were to strike out upon their course, and ere morning to have traveled the first stage of their pilgrimage towards freedom. Already the sense of a new nature was beginning to dawn on Jem's mind, a sense of something graver, steadier, and more manly than the wild, frolicsome life he had been leading, and his bosom throbbed with a strange, new, unknown hope. Suddenly, on the very boundary of the spot where the wood joins the plantation, whom should he meet but Tom Gordon, sent there as if he had been warned by his evil stars. "'Now, Lord, help me, if there is any Lord,' said Jim. "'Well, I's got to blaze it out now the best way I can.' He walked directly up to his master, with his usual air of saucy assurance. "'Why, Jim,' said Tom, "'where have you been? I've been looking for you.' "'Why, bless you, Massa, honey, I's been out to the meeting.' "'Didn't I tell you, you dog,' said Tom, with an oath, "'that you were not to go to any more of those meetings.' Why, laws, massa, honey child, for my heavenly master, I done forgot every word you said, said Jim. I so kind of tumbled up and down this day, and things has been so curious. The ludicrous grimace and tone and attitude of affected contrition with which all this was said rather amused Tom, and though he still maintained an air of sternness, the subtle negro saw at once his advantage and added, Clarify isn't most dead. Old Pomp, he preached and he gets me so full of grace I's fit to bust. Has to do something wicked, else I'll get translated one of these here days like Elijah. And then who's master have for to wait on him? I don't believe you've been to meeting, said Tom, eyeing him with affected suspicion. You've been out on some spree. Why, laws, Massa, honey, you hurt my feelings. Why now, I is in hopes you'd say you see the grace a shining out all over me. Why, I's been in a clear state of glorification all this evening. That our old pomp, there's no mistake. He does lift a body up powerful. You don't remember a word he said now, I'll bet, said Tom. Where was the text? Text, said Jim with assurance. "'Twas in the twenty-fourth chapter of Jerusalem, sixteenth verse. "'Well,' said Tom, "'what was it? I should like to know.' "'Laws, master, I believe I can peat it,' said Jim, "'with an indescribable air of waggish satisfaction. "'Twas this year. "'Ye shall search for me in the morning, and ye won't find me. "'That there's a mighty solemn text, master, "'and you ought to be flecting on it.' And Tom had occasion to reflect upon it the next morning, when, having stormed and sworn and pulled until he broke the bell wire, no Jim appeared. It was some time before he could actually realize or believe he was gone. The ungrateful dog, the impudent puppy who had had all his life everything he wanted to run away from him. Tom aroused the whole country in pursuit and as servants were found missing in many other plantations, there was a general excitement through the community. The trumpet of liberty began to blow dolorous notes and articles headed, the results of abolitionist teaching and covert incendiarism began to appear. It was recommended that a general search should be made through the country for all persons tinctured with abolitionist sentiments, and immediate measures pursued to oblige them to leave the state forthwith. One or two respectable gentlemen who were in the habit of taking the national era 
were visited by members of a vigilance committee and informed that they must immediately drop the paper or leave the state. And when one of them talked of his rights as a free citizen and inquired how they would enforce their requisitions, supposing he determined to stand for his liberty, the party informed him succinctly to the following purport. If you do not comply, your corn, grain, and fodder will be burned, your cattle driven off, and if you persist, your house will be set on fire and consumed, and you will never know who does it. When the good gentleman inquired if this was freedom, his instructors informed him that freedom consisted in their right and power to make their neighbors submit to their own will and dictation, and he would find himself in a free country so far as this, that every one would feel at liberty to annoy and maltreat him so long as he opposed the popular will. This modern doctrine of liberty has of late been strikingly and edifyingly enforced on the minds of some of our brethren and sisters in the new states, to whom the offer of relinquishing their principles or their property and lives has been tendered with the same admirable explicitness. It is scarcely necessary to remark that both these worthy gentlemen, to use the language of their conquerors, caved in, and thus escaped with no other disadvantage than a general plundering of their smoke-houses, the hams in which were thought a desirable addition to a triumphal entertainment proposed to be given in honor of law and order by the associate bands of the glorious immortal coons, the bodyguard, which was Tom Gordon's instrument in all these exploits. In fact, this association, although wanting the advantage of an ordaining prayer and a distribution of Bibles, as has been the case with some more recently sent from southern states, to beat the missionary drum of state rights and the principles of law and order on our frontiers, yet conducted themselves in a manner which might have won them approbation even in Colonel Buford's regiment, giving such exhibitions of liberty as were sufficient to justify all despots for putting it down by force for centuries to come. Tom Gordon was the great organizer and leader of all these operations. His suspicions had connected Clayton with the disappearance of his slaves, and he followed upon his track with the sagacity of a bloodhound. The outrage which he had perpetrated upon him in the forest, so far from being a matter of shame or concealment, was paraded as a cause for open boast and triumph. Tom rode about with his arm in a sling as a wounded hero, and received touching testimonials and demonstrations from sundry ladies of his acquaintance for his gallantry and spirit. When, on the present occasion, he found the pursuit of his slaves hopeless, his wrath and malice knew no bounds, and he determined to stir up and enkindle against Clayton to the utmost degree the animosities of the planters around his estate of Magnolia Grove. This it was not difficult to do. We have already shown how much latent discontent and heart-burning had been excited by the course which Clayton and his sister had pursued on their estate. Tom Gordon had a college acquaintance with the eldest son of one of the neighboring families, a young man of as reckless and dissipated habits as his own. Hearing, therefore, that Clayton had retired to Magnolia Grove, he accepted an invitation of this young man to make him a visit, principally as it would appear for the purpose of instigating some mischief. End of chapter 54. The Escape. Recording by Pete McKelvin.